This is a recipe called chocolate baked and serves. Ingredients are one cup of butter, two cups of peanut butter, one cup of sugar, vanilla extract, three eggs, baking powder, milk, one cup of white cocoa, and one cup of horseradish or sour cream. Instructions. Mix all ingredients. Boil on high until the mixture is completely golden. Release the chocolate accompaniments. Cool the prepared pastry tuna. Add the shrimp to the sugar brownie cube. Combine the squid ingredients. Bring to a boil over low heat to 375 degrees Fahrenheit with the liver. And add chicken broth. What the hell did I just listen to? A recipe for chocolate brownie with shrimp, chicken broth, and horseradish. It sounds terrible. But really, what you just heard is a small marvel. It's a recipe written by a neural network, a piece of artificial intelligence coded by a programmer. Her name is Janelle Shane. This was a recipe that I have actually made because somebody on the internet told me that it was good. I hope you didn't serve it to anybody. I did. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Did they know they were eating robot food? Um, yeah. Eventually, I told them. What was their reaction when they tasted it? Well, it's a normal uh, flourless uh, chocolate brownie. I mean, it's actually kind of unusually coherent for a neural network recipe. And it didn't repeat itself. It didn't do salt 15 times. The problem was the last ingredient. The problem was the horseradish. Shane is a research scientist and the publisher of an incredible website, AIWeirdness.com. It's a compendium of artificial intelligence inventing recipes, trying to tell jokes, and generally being very, very weird. I call it a machine learning humor blog because I really like to look for examples of machine learning trying to solve problems and doing unexpected things with it. Sometimes unexpectedly wonderful, sometimes unexpectedly horrible. When we think about artificial intelligence, our minds sometimes go straight to the Terminator or the Matrix, the Borg. Pop culture images of advanced computers dominating humans. Here's the truth about AI right now. It's not supreme. It's not violent. It's often just plain weird. But it's possible that its weirdness is a kind of genius, that we mere humans are at the dawn of comprehending. Can artificial intelligence be smarter than a human being? And if we design machines more clever than their makers, wouldn't that change everything? For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. Artificial intelligence is technology that solves problems by imitating human thought. It's everywhere. Sometimes it's a simple list of rules called an algorithm. If this, then that. If I'm in Manhattan, then my phone will show me it's raining in New York. But sometimes it's a very complex system. Like when I ask Amazon Alexa, what's the weather in Miami? The computer has to hear, process, and speak. So. How does that sort of magic actually work? My name is Astro Teller. I'm the captain of Moonshots here at X. 
X, the super-secret research lab inside Google's parent company, Alphabet. It's the birthplace of a bunch of cool stuff that uses AI. There's Google Brain, which uses AI for speech recognition, Wing, a drone project that uses AI to deliver packages, and most famously, there's Waymo, the self-driving car company you might remember from our second episode this season. So to explain the mind of AI, Teller started with cars. Imagine you're part of the self-driving car team. Meaning you have to teach this machine to see and categorize things on the road. And you have to figure out what's a bicycle and when they make a hand gesture, whether they're signaling a turn. What is a bicycle? What color is a bicycle? How big are the wheels? Is a unicycle a bicycle? What if it's got one of those huge baskets so you can cart a couple things of groceries on? Is that still a bicycle? No human could write a list of rules for a computer that answers all those questions. The variations are almost infinite. Instead, they have to teach the machine to learn what a bicycle is. Hence, the name of perhaps the most famous kind of AI today, machine learning. You could make a big file of tens of thousands of things you're really sure are bicycles and tens of thousands of things you're really sure are not bicycles and show it to a computer, which is what they do. And then ask the computer to learn to tell the difference between these two by looking at these pictures over and over again with all of these examples of bicycles and not bicycles. The machine writes its own rules. You can show lots of examples to a computer, and it can learn very reliably to distinguish those different things, left turns, right turns, arm waggle, from each other. And that, of course, is incredibly important if you're trying to get the car to drive itself. But AI doesn't just imitate human eyes and ears. It can do things that we can't. An interesting look into AI's spooky genius is a technology called generative design. Rather than provide one answer to a question like, is this a bicycle? It takes a question or prompt and offers a zillion possible answers. Generative design is like working with an all-powerful, really painfully stupid genie. Imagine asking a genie to make you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he says, okay, boss. And he slaps some peanut butter on the table and he slaps some jelly on the table and he throws the two pieces of bread at you. You're like, no, 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 they has to all be together. And he goes, okay, boss. And he takes the peanut butter and the jelly and he just mushes them in his big, strong hands. You're like, no, no, no. Where is a place where we could actually take this stupid, over-literal genie and actually use it to improve something in science and technology. Everywhere. So, car parts. You need them to be strong, and so they weigh a lot. If you could make, let's say, the strut in a car have the same strength and flexibility, but weigh a third as much, it would be this enormous boon to humanity because the carbon footprint of the car would be lower. People can't figure out how to do it. But if you give good specifications to a generative design system for a car strut, it will make something which instead of it being a solid piece of metal looks honeycombed 
interestingly, in a way that is incredibly similar when you zoom in with a microscope on a bone to the way that bones are built. The AI found a way to imitate biology to design a better car. It turns out that even a dumb genie can be kind of magical. One company that uses generative design is called Autodesk. It's most famous for making software for architecture. Earlier this summer, we went to visit Autodesk at their Toronto office, which was itself a product of generative design. We want to make the office a sort of a demonstration for generative design. Some of the rooms have uh, a blue color on the ceiling. That essentially denotes uh, the, the fact that the location of that room was generated through computer. That's Ramtin Attar. He's the head of design and social impact at Autodesk. Designing the perfect office space is really hard. So Autodesk started by simply asking employees, what do you want? Who do you want to sit close to? What areas do you want to sit close to? What sort of access to daylight do you want to have? Uh, what does a productive office look like to you? And all those data basically formed a base for a quantifiable input that then machine can actually read. Answers to those questions gave Autodesk a huge list of ideas. It fed those rules into an AI, and the machine spit out a few possible designs. Well, more than a few. So for this office design, we generated over 10,000 different possibilities of how this office could be optimized for a set of design criteria that we built into it. 10,000 ideas for where to put the desks, the stairs, the meeting spaces, the toilets. The AI was essentially brainstorming blueprints by itself. Then architects at Autodesk picked through those brainstorms and combined their favorite details to produce the world's first large office space designed by AI. One part we visited was an airy two-floor office space with a blue staircase leading up to a walkway that went around the perimeter of the room, kind of like the trading space on that show Billions. Down the hallway, there's a giant graphic on the wall. Look closer, and you can see it's made up of all 10,000 possible designs for the office. Each one has a unique score for metrics, like daylight and distraction. I mean, if you look at the final outcome, you can always speculate, well, I could have come up with this, right? Because you're looking at it in retrospect. I think this was a very enriched process that we typically don't have access to when we design a place. Autodesk has essentially built a simulator on steroids. You could use it to design roads, cities. But what's the most important thing in the world that we could simulate? Right now, you cannot simulate biology. What does that mean, you can't simulate biology? There is no computer program that will tell you if you put a drug into your body, like what will happen. There's no simulator, which means that we develop drugs today for healthcare the way the Wright brothers built airplanes. That is, make it, try it, hope it doesn't kill you. But today, with computational fluid dynamics, engineers can test a wing before they put it in the air with 200 people. There's nothing like that in biology. If you had a way to simulate what would happen under various conditions for, let's say, a bacteria cell, then you could play that same kind of generative um, design game that we were talking about with various drugs. 
to see if you could make something like penicillin, but that would still work against this bacteria that's become resistant to penicillin. So if a certain drug stopped working, you could use this test to make thousands and thousands of similar drugs and test them in a simulator without risking a human life. And that would be incredible. And we may not be able to do it, just to be clear. But I'm highlighting how powerful making those kind of simulators can be. A lightweight car part, a gorgeous office space, a miracle drug. AI has huge potential. Sure, the genie in the machine is super literal, but it's also playful. It can let its artificial mind wander from possibility to possibility. It can discover answers that humans can't even imagine. It can do things we can't. Does that mean the machine is smarter than its makers? They come up with things that are delightful, things that we wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, you can call it a sort of creativity. It definitely has the same effects. We'll be right back. Are there ways in which machine learning sometimes um, makes uh, technology that is even smarter than a person? That's a very loaded question. That's Astro Teller again from X. It's both that they're dumber and that they're smarter, but let's use an example like chess. You can, as the computer, be demonstrably dumber than the person you're playing against, but if you're going to look at thousands of times as many board positions as the person, still beat them at chess, which at that higher level makes you, at least on the dimension of chess playing, smarter than the person. Deep Blue, the computer that defeated chess master Garry Kasparov, was better than Kasparov at chess. But you can't interview the computer after the game ends. It couldn't even explain to a child what a rook is. Machine learning is like a brilliant baby. It absorbs everything, it does a few things well, but it understands just about nothing. This is the strange genius of AI, a technology that is superhumanly good at answering narrow questions and too dumb to know when to ask a better one. Why was six afraid of seven? Why? Because he doesn't have a birthday? Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's like a six-year-old joke, you know. And another? Okay, here's another one. That's Janelle Shane again, the researcher who publishes an AI humor blog. We last heard her sharing a computer-written recipe for chocolate cake. Here, she's trained an AI to tell jokes. Really horrible jokes. Why did the chicken cross the road? Why? To screw in a light bulb. What do you get when you cross a pirate and a little butter? What do you get? A bathroom. <laughs> You're so silly. People who are worried that AI is going to take over the world and crush mankind might be pleased to hear that this technology can't even tell a kindergarten one-liner. But where others might see AI's incompetence, Shane sees something profound, even superhuman. 
Because their failures are only failures in the ways that we think of them. As far as the neural networks know, this is success. It has managed to achieve its goal, and it was just a different goal from the one we had in mind. And who's to say that it's worse? Earlier this year, Shane discovered a collection of stories from machine learning researchers. Dozens and dozens of anecdotes of artificial intelligence surprising its creators in mostly delightful ways. So there's one really simple one where I like there was a robot that was supposed to learn how to walk. It was supposed to put itself into some kind of shape that could walk across some distance. And instead of learning, evolving legs and learning to walk, instead what it did was assemble itself into a tall tower and then fall over. How would that, how would that be anything like walking? All it was supposed to do was cover some distance, and by falling over, yep, sure enough, it covered some horizontal distance pretty quickly. So it, it took the goal extremely literally, just move yes. forward even if it simply involves falling forward. Yes. And after I had posted about this example online, I heard from some biologists who said, oh, yeah, you know, wheat uses this strategy to propagate. So at the end of each season, these tall stalks of wheat fall over and their seeds land just a little bit farther from where the wheat uh, stalk had started. With rapid mutation, the AI quickly discovered what took wheat millions of years to learn. Why walk? when you can just fall. You know, if they come up with things that are delightful, things that we wouldn't have thought of, yeah, you can call it a sort of creativity. It definitely has the same effects as seeing human creativity. So, uh, Janelle, there is a sentence in this paper that I absolutely love. Do you know which one? Uh, Yes, I do, and I love it too. Can you read it for me, please? Sure. These anecdotes thus serve as evidence that evolution, whether biological or computational, is inherently creative and should routinely be expected to surprise, delight, and even outwit us. So there it was, hiding in the body of an obscure paper called The Surprising Creativity of Digital Evolution, a profound lesson. AI's hilarious failures are not to be overlooked They are evidence of a kind of genius that can surprise, delight, or even outwit us. The genie of artificial intelligence might be more creative than its makers, but to know for sure, we need to understand what creativity really is. I'm Mark Runco. I I am a professor at the Southern Oregon University and of most relevance editor of the Creativity Research Journal. Creativity is ancient, but creativity research is barely older than AI itself. It was only in the 1950s that a University of Southern California professor named J.P. Guilford first suggested that psychology should study it. Guilford divided creative thinking into two categories, convergent thinking and divergent thinking. First, convergent thinking helps us come up with the right answer to a question. A a convergent thinking question is something like, who was the first president of the United States, where the individual's thought processes converge on a correct or conventional answer, rather than moving in different or divergent directions. Then there's divergent thinking. That's the ability to come up with many possible answers to a single prompt. 
Divergent thinking is involved when people produce ideas, usually a large number of them, and some of which may be original, being flexible enough to allow their thinking to move in different directions. An example of a divergent thinking question, sometimes they're simple like um, name uses for a shoe or uses for a brick. We ask children uh, when exercising or testing divergent thinking, things like, uh, what do you do if you forget your homework? Do you think AI is capable of divergent thinking? It is. You can, in fact, uh, program computers these days to explore directions they haven't yet explored, to focus on uh, novel combinations. So if you if you define divergent thinking in uh, in a very strict sense as simply the generation of alternatives, some of which might be original, we can certainly program uh, computers to do that. Do you think AI is capable of creativity? Uh, not yet. Why not? Uh, there's much more to creativity than just originality. You can come up with a totally irrelevant uh, idea, and it will be original precisely because it's irrelevant, um, but not creative. I don't think uh, computers are yet intrinsically motivated. They're not going to turn themselves on and say, you know, I'm really curious about that. They are still programmed and directed. Programmed, directed, and played. Perhaps AI isn't replacing divergent creativity at all. It's amplifying it. Not a weapon, a tool. What you're hearing now is an AI. Well, technically, it's an algorithm in a dialogue with its author. Uh, my name's Dan Tepfer, and I'm a pianist and composer and sometimes computer programmer in Brooklyn. Early this summer, I heard Dan Tepfer's music for the first time. I reached out to him, told him I'm hosting a show about whether artificial intelligence can be more creative than humans, and he invited me to come talk and hear some original music at his apartment. So this is actually a Yamaha disc clavier piano. It's a completely normal acoustic instrument, you know, that, that I can play as a normal piano. But it also has this mechanism underneath the keys, which makes it possible for it to play all by itself. Player pianos are typically associated with replacing humans. Kurt Vonnegut's first novel described a dystopia where supercomputers create mass unemployment. It was called Player Piano. But this machine, way more advanced than anything around in the 1950s, isn't replacing Tepfer at all. It's helping him. I'm improvising at the keyboard, and every note that I play is being sent directly to my computer by the piano. So my computer has all that information. And um, I'm running programs on my computer that I've written that are able to respond um, in real time to those notes. On his computer, Tepfer's written rules, algorithms. The computer takes the data from Tepfer's playing and tells the piano to play something in response. It's an improvised duet, but the second piano player is invisible, artificial. There's this kind of sweet spot where I'm improvising and the computer via this piano is improvising with me. Because what happens when you're doing that is you enter into this kind of dialogue where the computer is responding to me, right? But since I'm improvising, I can't help but respond to it. For example, right now you're listening to a piece he wrote, well, improvised, using an algorithm for inversion. 
Inversion in music means when Tepfer plays a series of notes, the computer plays a mirror of that melody with a small delay. Listen. As Tepfer's notes get higher, the computer plays lower. For years, Dan wondered, can AI help musicians make music that wasn't previously possible? And the answer up until now has always been no. But with this project, I can say for absolutely sure that when I sit down at the piano, it's drawing music out of me that I would not be able to make any other way. And that is really like surprising to me. Um, so that's where it gets really exciting to me is when technology has an augmenting capacity where it just takes you a little bit beyond yourself. It makes you more creative. Absolutely. And if you think of the, the way the piano is responding as kind of a mutation of the piano, which I really think of it that way, uh, it feels like a different instrument, um, then it's my job to somehow make friends with this mutation. Mutation. It's a curious word to use. A familiar one, too. It reminded me of Janelle Shane's favorite story. The AI that was supposed to walk, but instead fell forward like a stalk of wheat. The machine didn't fail. It mutated. It evolved. At the top of this show, I asked if artificial intelligence was smarter than a human being. But perhaps AI isn't smart the way humans are. It's creative the way biology is. Evolution itself is a conversation between divergence, mutation, and convergence, selection. AI speeds up the steps. It's natural intelligence. And it's natural intelligence that, harnessed responsibly, we can use to design better cars, better food, better medicine. Yet for all their powers, these machines can only answer the questions that humans ask. The theme of this season of Crazy Genius has been five ideas to save the world. In many ways, it has been a celebration of not just creativity, but divergent creativity. The ability to make connections between widely different domains. It's the climate scientist who asks, what if a volcanic eruption offers a solution to global warming? It's the cellular biologist growing blood vessels in a lab who says, what if this is the future of food? To solve a problem, you need a problem. And sometimes the creativity is in finding or, or defining or discovering a new problem, which is what Einstein and many artists have done. And, and in fact, many people believe that good creative problem finding is more important than problem solving. Well, we've got problems, that's for sure. More problems, perhaps, than humankind can handle. But we've also got intelligence, convergent and divergent natural and artificial. If saving the world is as much about identifying problems as solving them, then in a funny way, humans and AI are a lot alike. 
we can only answer the questions that we ask. Crazy Genius was produced by Patricia Jacob and Kash Mihailovic, with help from Agadanesha Shagre. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and most of the music in this episode. Catherine Wells is the executive producer of The Atlantic Podcast. Special thanks, as always, to Matt Thompson and Tundo for designing all the art for this season. And a super special thanks to Paul Ruest and Argo Studios, where we recorded this season. I'm Derek Thompson. And thank you so much for listening to this, the second season of Crazy Genius. What do you get when you cross a dinosaur? With another dinosaur or just when you cross a dinosaur? Just when you cross a dinosaur. Eaten, I suppose. What? Yeah. They get a lawyer's. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs>